Amen, amen. It is time for our children's sermon. So kids, come on up here. We have any kids here today? You're here. Look at you. Come on up here. Have a seat. Right up here. Come up here. All right. Good to see you guys today. Looking good? Looking good? All right. Is that everybody? No adults want to come up today? Just for kids. You can't come. All right. Have a seat. You know, I have a special Bible verse for you guys today. Do you think we could read it together for everyone out in the congregation? Ready? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. It's not always easy to trust in the Lord, is it? Sometimes it's easier to trust in ourselves, right? Our parents out there, they, 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 they have difficulty with that often because I'm a parent and I know what that means. Have you guys ever done a trust fall before? Yeah. I want you guys to do me a favor. Okay? Use this as an illustration. Everybody stand up. Make two rows down this aisle right here. Okay, Two rows facing each other just like this. Just like that. And then get everyone in a row, shoulder to shoulder, just like that. Okay, good. Ava should be in the front in the heaviest part of the trust fall. Right here. You guys don't want to participate or you want to get in line or what are you doing? Just hanging out? Perfect. Hey, Ava. All right, she's right there. It's perfect. That's the best spot for her to be. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to just fall. Do you think you guys could catch me? Do you think Ava could catch me? No. So if you don't catch me, I'm going to fall right on Ava's head. Okay, here I go. No, I'm not going to fall. You guys think I'm crazy? You, I am crazy. That's true. Okay, so you think you can catch me this way? You think? Okay, so everyone turn around. Make sure Ava's in there, and I'm going to fall from up here, okay? Get your arms together. Turn. Put your shoulders... Uh, what in the world? I thought you guys did this before. Yep, just like that. Just here, Danielle, turn this way. Perfect. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, from up here, I'm going to jump backwards, okay? You ready? Okay, you don't think I'll do it. I will do it. I will do it. Ready? I want you to count. One, two, ready? Congregation, ready? There's no way... You guys are crazy. Here's the trouble, right? Here's the trouble. This is what God says we're supposed to do. Especially the first part. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your, on your own understanding. When we rely on our own understanding, that doesn't mean stop using your brain. That's not what it's saying. It's saying we're using ourselves as the way to get through life. We're our own strength. We rely on our own mind to do everything. When instead, who are we supposed to trust in? Right? We're supposed to use God as our foundation, and we're supposed to trust in Him. Trusting in ourselves is the same thing as me jumping from this top step and expecting you guys to catch me. You might be able to, but you probably drop me. Instead, we trust in the Lord. The Lord will always, always, always catch you. Right? The Lord will always, always, always be with you. The key is we have to have the faith to trust in the Lord, to trust that he'll be there for us when we need him, okay? 
Word of the day today is trust. You are going to get so much candy. So much candy. All right. Go have a seat. Thank you. All right. Please take a copy of God's Word out with me this morning. Open it up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. The point of today's message is very, very simple. You can trust God. You can trust God. And that's what we're going to see as a testimony in this part of the text. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. What we're going to see first happening in the early church is tremendous growth and persecution. Because what we see in the first century church and in the church after the first century is that where God moves in a mighty way, Satan soon follows behind to enact and enable people to persecute the church. And so that's what's happening here. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. It's important to remember what's going on right now in the life of the early church. The church first experienced exponential growth in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus ascended to be with the Father. After that, there was a great persecution in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Believers from Jerusalem spread out into the areas of Palestine. And they continued to move from that area after that, sharing the gospel first with Jews only. Then Peter receives a vision from God. In that vision, God tells him to go to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius and to share the gospel with him and his family. Peter obeys, he goes, he shares the gospel. All of a sudden, we recognize that God not only wanted to reach the Jews with the gospel, but also the Gentiles. They're starting to figure out, oh, do you remember what the Lord said in, in, uh, with us on that mountaintop that's recorded in Matthew 28, that we're supposed to go into all the people groups, to all the world, and to share the gospel and make disciples. The gospel then makes its way to this Gentile city ma- named Antioch to the north. Now some Jewish Christians are starting to share the gospel with Greek-speaking Gentiles, and a movement of God breaks out there in Antioch. Thousands upon thousands of people are being saved. Barnabas and Saul go there and teach. And people are grown up and raised up in the church, learning the gospel, being saved. There's a movement of God. God brought miraculous growth. People are being saved. People are being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Thousands upon thousands of people are being freed from the bondage of sin and their allegiance to this world and Satan. And their life, their relationship with God has changed, it's transformed, and they're now part of his church. So the enemy Satan doesn't like that when it happens. And so at this part of the text... He brings one one of his most powerful servants at this time, a man by the name of King Herod, formerly known as Herod Agrippa I. That's the Herod in this story in verse 1, probably around A.D. 42 or 43. Scholars suggest that Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great murdered his own son. Then Herod, his grandson, was moved to Rome where he was raised with the aristocracy. And then in AD 37, the emperor of Rome, Caligula, gave him the title of king. 
Over time, he accrued more and more territory under his authority, and very soon he was ruling over Judea and Samaria and Galilee, the Transjordan and the Decapolis. He truly was, at this time, the self-appointed and recognized king of the Jews. Then he realizes something. He can arrest and persecute Christians, and the Jews with whom he was politically connected with loved that. And so he started to do that. He started in verse 2 with James, John's brother, one of the apostles. It says in verse 2, And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. And after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Satan's fury for the church and for believers is channeled through this man named Herod. First, he arrests and executes the apostle James, brother of John. Herod realizes that his Jewish friends appreciate that, that they like that, and so he looks for ways to make friends with them. So next, he arrests he arrests the apostle Peter. Now, it would have been improper for Herod to execute Peter during the time of the festival of the unleavened bread, which is part of Passover. So he arrests him and he puts him in jail. He's going to hold him there in jail until the festival is over. Once it's over, he's going to bring him out in front of the people, very similar to the way that Jesus was brought out in front of the people. And if the crowds wanted Peter to be executed, that's exactly what Herod was prepared to do. I think it's pretty interesting. If you look at that text, Herod arrested Peter. He put him in the Roman jail, which was a part of uh, the temple complex in Jerusalem. And he put him under armed guard of 14 Roman soldiers. That seems a little bit over the top, right? I mean, Peter was a tough guy. But I don't know that it required 14 Roman guards, Roman soldiers, to, to make sure that he didn't get out. What is the world, what in the world is going on right now? Well, do you remember Acts chapter 5, when the Jewish leaders arrested the apostles and they put them in jail? Do you remember what happened? God busted them out of that jail. Right? Like our song said, he's a chain breaker. No, nothing, nothing will thwart the will of God. Nothing will stop God's army, God's people, from fulfilling his will. No chain, no emperor, no jail will hold God's people back. So Herod thinks, I should probably put more guards there to make sure that this guy Peter doesn't get out. And so he puts 14 of them, out, of them there. The Christians, the church, had, had no way to go in and you know, assault the jail to get Peter out, so they turn to a stronger method of extraction. What is that? Prayer. That's right. They turn to prayer. They turn to the Lord. Now, I want to stop just for a minute. I want to talk about persecution, because what's happening right now to the church, to Peter, is a spiritual battle. It's spiritual persecution. The threat of persecution has always been a part of the life of believers 
in the life of the church from when Jesus instituted the church before his ascension all the way up till today. Even today, I know it's, it's oftentimes hard for us to believe most of the Christians in this world, most Christians in this world live under the threat of constant persecution. Most of the Christians in this world do not get to gather like we do in a place like this, publicly worshiping God. Most come into worship wondering if they'll live to see tomorrow. Most hide in basements when they worship God. Most, when they turn from sin and trust in Jesus and Lord as Savior, know that this could be a death sentence for them. But they also know that this is the one single true path to everlasting life. The question as we think about trusting God is this. Am I ready to live and to die for Jesus? Am I ready to live and to die for Jesus. Because the Word of God makes several promises to us that I want to let you know about today. First, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 says that we will be persecuted for following Jesus. Let me say that again. We will be persecuted for following Jesus. This is a statement made to all believers everywhere, living at all times. It says, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. This is Paul speaking. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. Verse 12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the life of a believer is not an easy life. Someone who legitimately follows Jesus Someone who follows this word and seeks to live in righteousness will be persecuted by this world. John 15, 19, and 20 tells us that the world will reject us because we follow Jesus. It's as if you were, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. Because we follow Jesus, because we love him, because we seek to walk the path of righteousness, we will be living and walking contrary to the standards of this world. And there will be consequences for that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12 tell us that our endurance of persecution reaps a great reward in heaven. When we walk through the promised persecution, our king tells us, you will be rewarded for your faithfulness in following me. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, church, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The hundreds of thousands of believers that came before you, church, the ones that endured persecution, the ones that were, that were murdered for their faith, the, one, the ones who lost jobs and families and futures. 
They are a great, great group in heaven praising our God at his throne right now. Celebrating what we are doing as the church through Jesus Christ. Celebrating the reward that they receive for following Jesus and being faithful. And we too can celebrate with them because one day there will be a great reward in heaven for those who remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you walk through persecution, that reward in heaven is multiplied for you. That's what that text means. Well, what do you say about this, church? What do you say about this? Are you ready to live and to die for Jesus? Are you ready to endure the persecution that has come and will come for you? Well, that really boils down to the theme of today's message. It's a question you probably asked yourself many times. It's a question that we ask when the Holy Spirit compels us to take a step of faith. Do I trust God? Do I trust God? Can I trust God? Does he have the power and the authority and the desire to walk with you through persecution, through tough times, and to free you from your bondage to sin? Can God do that? Will he do it? He will. He's been doing it since he created this world. And he will do it in your life too. Let's watch what he did in the life of Peter as we talk about this miraculous break, beginning in verse 6 here. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. There's some pretty humorous things that are present right now in this text. It's easy to read through this and not catch this, right? First of all, Peter is in jail, arrested by Herod for being a Christian, for being a follower of Jesus. The other apostle, James, was just executed by Herod shortly before that. So I think Peter probably knows what's going to happen to him. He's under armed guard by 14 uh, or 16 uh, Roman soldiers. He's in a cell, locked cell, chained to two of them. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. You know, if someone says a nasty word to me, I have a hard time sleeping, right? If someone's mean to me, I, I, you know, sometimes I have a sleepless night. Peter was going to be executed the next day. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. That joker is sleeping. He was tired, so he went to sleep. And then, listen, an angel comes into that cell. You read through the Bible, the presence of angels is a pretty magnificent thing. Like, the, the earth shakes, uh, they're really, really bright, um, they're so fantastic, people fall on their face down in the front of them. Like, that's what happens when an angel comes in the room from God. This angel comes in the room, there's the bright light, Peter's sound asleep. I wonder if the angel was surprised by that. So, 
It's time for Peter to get up and to get out. So what does the angel do? It says there that he, he strikes him in his side. So let me tell you what that isn't, and then let me tell you what that is. So when we look at the original Greek, <clears throat> this isn't the way that you like come in and wake up your kids for school, right? Wake up. Time for school. Brush their hair back. Are you okay? How's it going? Did you sleep? No, this is, this is like probably the angel like kicked Peter in the ribs. Like, get up! Let's go! And then military style tells him exactly what to do. Peter was sleeping so soundly, he's in a stupor when he wakes up. So the angel's got to tell him what to do, right? Get up. Put your clothes on. Put your shoes on. Follow me. Have you ever woken your kid up in in such a deep sleep that they're like all confused and groggy and acting all goofy? That's how I wake up after a nap, by the way. Anybody else? Yeah? So that's kind of what's going on with Peter. He's sleeping so soundly, the angel's got to like be a parent here. Like, put your clothes on. Stand up. Let's go. And that's exactly what Peter, that's really funny. One day you'll think that's funny when you read it. So what does Peter do next? Verse 9. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that the angel, what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision, right? So remember, Peter's the one that saw the vision about Cornelius. He thinks he's wrapped up in another vision. So he's like, oh, this really isn't happening. He's so groggy from his deep sleep. Verse 10 continues, after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent the angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people uh, expected. So Peter's sort of like sleepwalking with the angel. Now let's take a moment and just see what miraculous works God did. He sent an angel. He busted the chains off of Peter. He opens all the doors. They walk by 16 Roman guards. Now, this is a big deal because Roman guards, if they are, did allow a prisoner to escape, would have been executed the next day. And these guys were executed. So when they guarded someone, it was a big deal. They, they didn't take that lightly. God miraculously moves Peter through the jail cell, through all those guards, two layers of guards. And then when they get to the outside of the edge of the jail itself, Um, which is probably the Tower of Antonia, which is on the edge of the temple complex. When you left that tower, um, you were kind of in the middle of Jerusalem. So God opened all those things, and then the angel didn't have to touch the gate. The gate just opened by itself, and they just walk right through. He realizes that, okay, this is legit. Like, this actually happened. I thought I was having a vision. But he kind of comes to, he's standing in the middle of Jerusalem in the middle of the night. Verse 12 continues. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's called Mark. That's the writer of the Gospel of Mark, not John, James' brother. Where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But they kept in, she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. So this is pretty hilarious. Why is it hilarious? God is doing a miracle and like the people are the only thing holding this thing back, right? So first Peter's sleeping. 
God sends the angel. Peter's really hard to wake up. Then Peter comes out, and he goes to the house church of Mary, right? He gets to the house church, and there's a girl there named Rhoda, and she would have been in charge of, like, opening the outer gate. So you had your house, you had a courtyard, and there was this outer gate. So if someone was banging on that outer gate, she would be the one to go and see who it was. So there's banging. She goes to the outer gate. She recognizes that it's Peter by the sound of his voice. And instead of opening the gate and letting Peter in, she runs back, leaving Peter outside, sort of stranded outside the gate in the city, and comes into the church. Can you imagine her telling them, everybody listen, listen. They're like, what, what? Peter's outside. Meanwhile, you know, the church had been praying for Peter, asking God to miraculously intervene and to help Peter get out of that circumstance. And so now they hear Peter is standing outside at the gate. And so the right answer would have been, praise the Lord, we've been praying for this, Peter's been released, let's go get him. And what's their answer? No, 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 it's not Peter, it couldn't be. Peter's in jail, it's got to be his angel. They're relying on this sort of traditional Jewish belief with some support that we see in Scripture, but very, very vague, that Peter had a guardian angel. Some people believe that, some people don't. You can check into that for yourself. I don't see a lot of evidence for that in Scripture. In any regard, whether you believe it or not, it wasn't Peter's guardian angel. It was Peter in the flesh staying outside the gate. So instead of believing that God had answered that prayer and that Peter had been miraculously moved from jail, they thought of like all the things they could to explain why Peter couldn't possibly be out of jail. You know what, church? I'm so glad that we never do that, right? I'm so glad that we never dismiss the movement of God for human answers. We don't do that, do we? We do it all the time. That's exactly what they did. It's funny, like they had literally been praying for Peter. And then God answered their prayer, and then they didn't believe that God did that. So Peter comes in, verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, because, you know, God miraculously broke him out of jail, right? So if I was in jail, and y'all were in here praying, if I was in jail, would y'all come in here and pray for me? I just, well, one person, Chantel, thank you. I got the message loud and clear, church. Appreciate that. I know who I can count on, Chantel. She'll be here praying for me. If y'all were in here praying for me, or we were praying for you and you were in jail, and I came in, there would probably be a lot of commotion, right? Like, praise God, look, there he is. He got out of jail. God did that. He broke him out. Yes. Now, so Peter's got to, like, get everybody under control. He's like, okay, settle down, settle down. Be quiet. He describes to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. Then, to tell these things to James and the brothers. This is Jesus' brother James, who's now leading the Jerusalem church. And he said, he said that, and then he left and went to another place. That's the end of verse 17. So, Peter does exactly what you're supposed to do when God answers prayer and does something really special. What did he do? He told people about it. He had a testimony. God busted me out of that jail. This is exactly how it happened. Make sure to tell the rest of the church. Why? Because it's encouraging when God moves, right? So when God moves in your life, when God answers prayers, you should tell people that. I want the encouragement when God moves in your life, okay? At least tell me. I want to hear about that. We want to hear about that. So he stops there in verse 18. 
At daylight there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what happened to Peter. Verse 19. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So what's going on? The day, the next day comes. One of those guards has got to go back to King Herod and tell him that Peter busted out of jail. And then they got to tell him that somehow he got out in front of all 16 of us. And then when he says, how in the world did that happen, right? The Roman army was a well-disciplined army. They would have processes and procedures for guarding prisoners. One of those probably was that some of y'all need to stay awake at night while everybody else is sleeping, right, on watch. So somebody there is going to have to explain that I was awake the whole time, and then all of a sudden he was gone. Did you fall asleep? No, no, I swear I didn't fall asleep. I just didn't see him leave. Well, how did the chains get off his arms? One of you who had the key had to have unlocked the chains from his arm. You are, you are helping the enemy. That's probably what Herod's telling them at this point. Because how else did the chains get off? And their answer is going to be, I didn't unlock the chains, and yet somehow the chains fell off his arms. And then someone's going to have to explain how he got out of the jail cell, how he got out of the prison. How did all those gates open? Nobody knows. Herod's answer, being a particularly cruel and horrific king, he executes all the soldiers who were involved at that time. So Herod kind of gives up on that, and he leaves Judea, leaves Jerusalem, to Caesarea, which is where he preferred to spend most of his time. The same place Cornelius was saved, if you remember. It was really a primarily a Gentile town, but it was also the place where the king liked to spend his time. It was a beautiful place. Herod leaves and goes up there. And so we pause. And we're going to apply this part, this miraculous movement of God, to our own lives. The first thing I want to tell you is that what happened in Peter's life, what happened in the life of the disciples in the early church, wasn't just something that happened then. Like, God didn't move in mighty ways then and just stop doing it now. God is at work in this world, doing the same things that he was doing then. God is still calling people out to take magnificent steps of faith on his behalf to proclaim the gospel. God can, he can, when it is in accordance with his will, save you from any circumstance. Church, I think sometimes we don't believe that. God can, when it is in accordance with his will, save you from any circumstance. Illness, captivity, difficulty. I've seen him save people from all three of those things, miraculously. He's still in the business of doing great things. That's our God. He can do that. When it's in accordance with his will, in accordance with your faith. Second, I want to tell you what God will do in your life. What he's promised to do. God will save you from your captivity to sin and Satan. God will, 100% of the time, when you repent of your sin and ask for forgiveness, He will save you through Jesus Christ. The question is, will we ask Him to save us? 
Will we turn from our sin? Will we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior? God will save you from your captivity to sin and to Satan. When Jesus came and was walking on this earth, he was up in Galilee at the beginning of his ministry. Luke records in Luke chapter 4 something that Jesus said out of the book of Isaiah. It was a fulfillment of what people expected the Messiah to come and do. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Church, I have to ask you this morning, are you poor in spirit? Are you plagued by mistakes? Jesus alone can provide you forgiveness. Are you captive to sin? Are you caught up in some kind of sin like drugs, alcohol, pornography, sexual immorality, anger, lying? Are you caught up in a sin like that because our Jesus can set you free? Are you searching for truth and purpose? Because Jesus can open your eyes. Are you oppressed by this world? Are you oppressed by your past? Because Jesus can lift that weight off of your shoulders. He said, come to me, all who are heavy laden. And what did he say? I will bring you rest. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. The gates of heaven have opened up, and today is the day of salvation. For all who repent, for all who would come to the Lord in humility, will be forgiven, will be brought joy and satisfaction in the Lord. Take your sin to Him. Take your burden to Him. Take your needs to Him. Come to Him with your illnesses and your struggles and lay Him at His altar. In the words of Zach Williams, who wrote that song, Chain Breaker, that we sang earlier, if you've got pain, He's the pain taker. If you feel lost, He's the way maker. If you need freedom or saving, listen, He's the prison-shaking Savior. If you've got chains, he's the chain breaker. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? He's worthy of your trust. He's capable of carrying your burden. And our God and our Savior desires to walk with you through your darkest valleys. Well, sometimes... Living in the world in which we live today, we often ask ourselves, who's really in charge of this place? You ever ask that question? I do. Go turn the news on when you get home from church. It's like, whoa, who's, who's in charge of this? Who's in charge of this circus? Well, I'm sure Herod, the king of the Jews, felt that he was in charge of his area of Palestine, don't you think? I mean, he could grab anybody he wanted to off the street and execute them on the spot. 
He could put Christians in prison. And I'm sure the Christian church often wondered and prayed to God and asked, God, who, who's in charge right now? We, we, we know that you're our God. We, we know that Jesus is our Lord and we trust in him, but, but people are being slaughtered. I mean, James was just killed. What's going on? So let's see who's in charge. Look at verse 20. Herod had been angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So what's going on is there's a couple uh, coastal countries, Tyre and Sidon, to the west of where Caesarea was. And they were, they were outside of, of Herod's control. And they had done something to make him mad. So in their, in their trade, Herod was sort of blockading them. He wasn't allowing resources to be moved back and forth. So they needed food from Rome to stay alive. And so they had to have a trade with Rome. And so they, they talked to this guy, Blastus, who has like one of the most interesting jobs I've ever seen. He's in charge of the king's bedroom. I don't know what that means. Sounds weird. So he's got Herod's ear. So they, they make friends with Blastus. Blastus starts talking to Herod and says, hey, these guys really want to like make this work, so what do we need to do? So, so they work it out. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a day when Herod's going to come and he's going to sit on his big, beautiful throne, right? And all the people from those two cities, they're going to come and they're going to come at his feet and they're going to grovel and that's how they're going to work this out, right? Herod, being an instrument of Satan, is going to behave just like Satan does. Because what does Satan really, really want? He wants to be worshipped by you. God created us to worship him. Our purpose is to live and give God glory by worshipping him. That's, that's our, our purpose in this life. God created us to worship him. And we worship him by doing all kinds of things. We can talk about that another day. So Satan, as a counterfeit God... He wants to take what's rightfully God's, which is the worship of God's creation. That's the ultimate high for Satan. So Herod, as Satan's instrument, is going to do exactly what Satan wants. He's going to do his best to be worshipped by God's creation. Verse 21. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne. Man, that could be out of the book of Revelation describing God, right? talks about God being seated on a throne in beautiful array. All right? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It is the voice of God and not of man. Herod sits on his throne in front of these people, groveling at his feet. He's dressed in this, we believe, a, a silver sort of robe with silver, made of silver, and picture, you know, they believe that through extra-biblical literature that he gave his speech in the morning as the sun came up and it would have just shone and, and brightly reflected off of his throne. And so he's sitting here. And what we have devised by Satan is a counterfeit God seated on a throne demanding the worship from God's people, from God's creation. And so Herod just sits there and he soaks it up. These people worshiping him as a god. Verse 23. Who's really in charge? That's the question we're trying to answer. Who's really in charge? Verse 23. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him 
because he did not give glory to God and was eaten by worms and died. The interesting thing about Herod is he, he knew the law. He had educated himself in Jewish law and Jewish uh, worship, and he knew who Yahweh was according to Jewish scripture. And so he knew what was right, and yet he did not do what was right. And God held him accountable for that and plagued him with parasites. The early church historian named Josephus says that Herod died five days later from this infestation of parasites in one of the most horrific deaths possible. So who's in charge? God's in charge. Verse 24. But the word of God spread and multiplied. So just a few verses earlier, we hear about this guy, Herod, who, by the way, is from a family of Herods who were horrible to God's people. And now we get to this Herod who starts to persecute the Christian church, which is what we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 of Acts. And then God intervenes. He takes him out of the picture. And then what happens in verse 24? The word of God spread and multiplied. And as a side note, verse 25, after they completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. Remember, they had been up in Antioch. They also took John, who is called Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. It's amazing to see how someone like Herod, who is very powerful, feared, and even worshipped, was removed by God just like that. And then the church continued to flourish and grow. So church, who's really in charge of this world? Who is in charge of this world? Who is in charge of this world? All right, sometimes you just need to say it, right? And you need to hear other people saying it. God's in charge. Even the most powerful and smartest, wealthiest, and worshipped people in this world will not prevent God's plan from coming to fruition. God is a God who calls the lost sinner to salvation. God is a God who places governments in their places and takes them away. God provides. God changes hearts. God holds the universe together. God maintains creation's delicate balance. That same God protects. He empowers. That God strengthens. He judges. He heals. He fulfills His purposes. He creates. That same God, church, He reconciles. He raises the dead. He saves the sinner. He sends His angels, and He loves the saints. That's our God. That is our God. And He's in charge. He's in charge, and you can trust Him, church. You can trust Him. You can trust Him yesterday, today, and tomorrow because our God is trustworthy. Trust in the Lord to work everything out and remember this promise from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean, do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. That's our God. And he's worthy of our trust. Do you trust him?
Our God is so good and mighty and worthy of our worship and adoration. And our Lord Jesus Christ gave us a way to fellowship around him as a church. And so today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus intended for the Lord's Supper to be something that brought the church together in fellowship, in communion. It's something we do to remember what he did for us on the cross and also to remember that he's coming back. That he didn't leave us never to return. That same Jesus who ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father is going to come back and he's going to take us home to be with him. And so today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is something that's very important to the Lord and very important to this church. It's something that only should be celebrated by born believers. So if you are a believer, we invite you to partake with us. If you're not, we invite you to watch and to pray and come forward during our time of invitation. And, and I'll tell you how you can be a believer. It's something that we're only to do after a period of introspection, of preparation. And so in just a minute, we're going to be seated here, and we're just going to spend a couple minutes praying individually at our seats. If, if there's something between you and the Lord, if the Spirit's brought something to your heart, you can have that time at your seat just to pray and prepare your heart before we take the Lord's Supper. If you, if you don't have the elements yet, they're in the foyer, so during that time you can get up and get them and then come back. They'll be available for you in the back. Let's take this time now and just prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.